1 Corinthians chapter 2 is a fine place to find yourself on a Sunday morning. Um, I enjoyed studying 1 Corinthians with you so much already. I'm really excited that there's, you know, a lot more of it. And then after this, there's the sequel. And sometimes sequels aren't as good as the original. But 2 Corinthians is really good. So I'm just, I'm already excited for that. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 9 to verse 16, which finishes up the chapter quite nicely. Uh, I'm of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the... Let us dwell there. Let us live there. Abide there. If you've given us your Spirit, then, then prevent us, please, from trusting in or, or desiring any other spirit. Jesus, if you have ministered to us in such a way that you have given us your mind and your heart and yourself, then prevent us from, from wanting to have any other mind except that which was in Christ Jesus. Uh, we pray that, the, that what the Corinthians needed to hear, we would also hear. That uh, We pray against division or spiritual pride of any kind. And we determine now in your presence, with the help of your spirit, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And we desire to come and cling to the cross and nothing else, and hope in the cross and nothing else. Let our church be cross-shaped. Uh, let our lives be, be oriented around Christ and him crucified, where we see the very wisdom of God, the very mind of Christ, the spirit of God is given to us here. Bless us, give us understanding, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Got that right. Um, we should just pause and acknowledge verse 9 again. That's really beautiful. Like, verse 9 is just a beautiful piece of Scripture. It's a great verse. It's a beautiful truth presented in beautiful poetry, right? Eye has not seen nor, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That should make your guts do something, right? That should make your heart leap within you. There's a, there should be a visceral reaction to this, like, wow, God is, God is for me in ways beyond anything I could have guessed. God is for me. Now, even, even though it says that the plans of God have not entered into the heart of man, can I just encourage you to hide this verse in your heart, along with the, the Spirit of God and the plans of God that he's given you? It will change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you hope. God has good things stored up for his people, why would we go anywhere else for any good things? God has better things for you than you have seen. God has better things for you than the things you've heard. God has better things for you than what you can imagine. And this, this should remind you of Paul in, in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 3, verse 20, which I like in the NIV, believe it or not. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more then all we ask or imagine, see nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. He's given you something better than you would ever be able to invent. 
Now, it does say, as it is written. That's actually how verse 9 starts, so let's begin at the beginning. It says, as it is written, uh, kind of. Um, Paul paraphrases a lot, actually. This is a, sort of a loose paraphrase of Isaiah 6, verse 4, which says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You see, it's a little bit different. Uh, Paul was like that. He paraphrased a lot. I don't think this gives you permission to misquote Bible verses, but it's interesting that Paul does it all the time. Um, but in, in Isaiah, so or sorry, in Corinthians, Paul is saying God has better things for you than you could imagine. And Isaiah, if you read Isaiah, you see what it is that God has prepared for them. It's himself. Nor has any eye seen what? God. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. God is the blessing. Jesus Christ is the blessing that is beyond what you can see or what you could hear or what you could imagine, and he is for you. Paul's simple point in quoting Isaiah, or kind of quoting Isaiah, misquoting? No, I'm not going to be that harsh on him. Just citing Isaiah. Is, uh, is clear. His simple point is clear, and it's certainly in line with the rest of the testimony of Scripture, and it is this. God's good plans for you are beyond you in every way. His goodness, his good plans for you is beyond you in every way. His goodness towards you, his mercy towards you is beyond what you deserve, of course, but it's also beyond what you are capable of perceiving. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, a couple months ago, actually, when we were in our Advent series, but it's good enough to mention here, too. You've forgotten Advent already by now, right? Um, the the well-known passage from Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, is about his ways being higher, higher uh, than our thoughts. And that's usually understood, or rather misunderstood, as an explanation of why our lives are uncomfortable or confusing. Have you seen that passage applied that way? I'm sure you have. It's like, you're in a tricky spot. You don't know what to do. Maybe everything's going wrong. So you throw up your hands and you say, well, his ways are higher than my ways. So I guess God's got a plan. Of course he does. But that is not the, really the spirit in which those words were written. Um, application might be there. Interpretation is way off. Um, in, in the Isaiah passage, you can see from Isaiah 55, that the verse immediately preceding is about uh, the, the, the verse before his ways being higher than yours. It's all about the wicked being forgiven. That's, what, that's why his ways are higher. It's about the wicked being forgiven. When he says that his ways are higher, it means that his mercy is deeper than you would ever expect or imagine. When you would demand justice or expect punishment, he would forgive and say, I'm just to forgive, 1 John 1, 9. When rather than the flesh. And this is really where this concept ties together the, uh, the greater context of 1 Corinthians. What has Paul been preaching against? The wisdom of men, right? Or really the kind of the, the lust for wisdom or sounding really smart. Um, he's preaching against what passes off as wisdom by people who are easily impressed with big fancy words and have egos in constant need of stroking. Paul has been rejecting this false sophistication of those who would replace the message of the cross in its simplicity with this self-exalting arguments and speeches that were common in, in the Corinthian culture of the day. So he says, I came to you sounding like a fool. That's how he started chapter two, pretty much. And he readily admitted that the message of the cross sounds like foolishness to those who are perishing, chapter one, verse 18. 
He knew the message of the gospel would appear as foolishness in this world, this world that only understands extreme selfishness as worthy of pursuit. We compare the wisdom of the world with the wisdom that is from above. James says it's, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's willing to yield. Indicating, of course, that the worldly wisdom that James calls demonic is defiled, divisive, and arrogantly stubborn, which described the Corinthians pretty well. Paul preached against that kind of selfish wisdom, and in doing so, he appeared as a fool. All those who preach the gospel in this world, this world that is unchristian and anti-Christian, you have to be prepared to appear the same way. The message of the cross is still foolishness to those who are perishing. But, wait, there's more. Uh, at this point in the letter, Paul is shifting gears. He's saying that while the cross and the gospel appear to be foolishness, and always will appear to be foolishness, the cross is actually the wisdom of God. It is a higher, better wisdom that is so far beyond any of this cheap sophistication of the day, the cheap sophistry of the day. You can't even imagine this kind of the simple gospel of Christ and him crucified. This passage is such a beautiful mix of glory and humility. It's really worth our time and our focus. And with that in mind, read verse 9 again and follow it up with verse 10. It says, But as it is written... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Deep things of God. Now, it's really easy to misunderstand verse 9 by removing it from verse 10. Um, it's really easy to, to read verse 9 and say, God has great things prepared for us, which he does, and then assume immediately and all that's in heaven, and someday I will see it. Of course heaven is beyond what we can imagine. I think we can all agree with that. But it's not part of Paul's argument here. Heaven is not what he's talking about, and verse 10 proves it. After he says that it hasn't entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared, he says, but God has revealed them to us. You can know these things. It's the wisdom of God that surpasses human reason and human imagination. No one can make this stuff up. See, Paul is not telling the Corinthians, who want wisdom so bad, right? They want to sound smart. They want to be with smart people. It just really matters to them to be sophisticated because that's just their culture right there. Um, he's not saying trade down. <laughs> he's not saying don't be smart. Forget about wisdom. Come on. He's saying there is such a better wisdom, a wisdom of a higher quality. There's a vast view of the actual wisdom of God given to you. This is not a compromise. The gospel is not a compromise. You're not settling. You're getting beauty for ashes. Isaiah 61, right? Beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It's a good deal. Later in writing to the Corinthians, he'll say, you know, he became, or he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the trade. It's a good trade. The gospel will always be an upgrade from whatever you've replaced it with. So again, Paul has spent some time presenting himself and his message as simple and even foolish by worldly standards. But now he's, he's flipping it and he's showing the message that some call foolishness to be truly the highest wisdom of God. And what's more, he's saying that this wisdom is accessible for all those in Christ. He's saying that the greatest wisdom a man could know has been, actually, no, by himself, is now spiritually given to you. 
It is revealed to you by God's own spirit who enters your body. It's a good trade. This is another message that we can see echoed in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, verse 3 and 5, I'll read both of them. Paul says, By revelation he made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as I learned that every Christian, that every Christian community that God um, had, had come to were dwelling with God. God had come to dwell with his people and the promise of Jesus to send a helper, to not leave his followers orphans. It has been fulfilled and that's what the church is. So they, they knew that. But, you know, you can, you can know some things and then not live like you know them. It's to believe that this would have been one of the few doctrines that all the various factions of Corinthians actually agreed upon. They believed the spirit of God was with them. They misunderstood the application of that, which got into some of the other problems the Corinthians had, right? Because they, they, were, they misunderstood how the Spirit moves in the church. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of spirituals. It says spiritual gifts usually, but the word is, is spiritual. I, don't, I want you to know about this. But even those who said, I am of Paul, or those who said, I am of Apollos, they still believed that they were saved. when they were saved, the Spirit of God took up residence in their bodies. Again, this is here and now at the cross. And then still think, well, the good stuff's over there. No. Echoing Ephesians a lot, you know, Paul says, you know, he prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And you're like, that can't happen. Mm -mm, too big of a space, small containers, big things, small containers. <laughs> filled with the fullness. Yeah. Paul says, if you have that, if you have access to that kind of wisdom, what are you doing going and seeking wisdom out with those guys? He says in verse 10 that the Spirit searches the deep things of God. And then he says, for what man knows the things... We've seen already in the first two chapters of Corinthians that Corinthians has a lot in common with Galatians because they're both corrective letters. They're both Paul scolding a church that's gone wrong. And to the Galatians, he, he writes, having begun in the spirit, would you now be made perfect in the flesh? Well, now he's sort of asking, having attained wisdom in the spirit, would you now be made perfect by the mind, by their minds, the unregenerate, unilluminated minds? The implied answer is, of course not. That would be stupid. You know, your car has run on gas this far, but you could, you could try diesel. Just put it in. Or vegetable oil. Vegetable oil. I hear they can do that. Just pour it on in. Sticks of butter. Just pop. You, you started building the house with maybe concrete block, but I, I think, you know, the rest, that would be just, no. The Corinthians cared about wisdom. The, the message of the cross didn't sound like wisdom. Anymore, They wanted to distance themselves from the gruesome details of crucifixion. But what they were forgetting is that this message of the cross was what saved them from their worldly foolishness in the first place. It was the message of the cross as it was presented to the community of the church by the apostles. That's what contained the mind of God, which is the epitome and pinnacle of supreme wisdom. Now, as Christians, you can be confident in the message of the gospel, you can, with Paul, say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's not nonsense. This isn't foolishness, though it looks like it is to the world. But they're perishing. The rulers of this world are already coming to naught. That's not a good standard to measure wisdom against. Christians are not intellectually inferior for believing what they believe. It's not just make-believe, pretend time. Okay, the message of the gospel which has been given to us by God's own spirit, comes directly from God's own mind, and we should be honored and humbled 
to possess it. Amen. And of course, we should, we should be hesitant to seek out a greater wisdom from somewhere else. And we should see how foolish we look when we trade the eternal riches of God for something so weak and temporal as human wisdom. Now, of course, being on Paul's side here, knowing that the wisdom of God is wisdom indeed, no matter what it looks like to the world, and knowing that the message of the cross, which is ridiculed by the world, is the very power of God to those who believe, we are still aware that there's, there's this dividing. You know, it's not really foolishness, but we know that that's what it looks like to the world. And it, it's, it's just going to. In verse 13, it says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him was Christ in him crucified. These things we speak are the things of God revealed by the Spirit of God, the message of, cro of the cross which reveals the wisdom of God. These things we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which addressing spiritual people. Paul is giving a lot of credit to this Corinthian church. Um, he said, you know, back in verse 6, which I tried to read at the beginning, Paul goes on, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You're just not going to know what I'm talking about. The natural man is unregenerate, unsaved, and because of his spiritual deadness, he is uninterested in the things of God and unable to receive them. Dead people don't seem to be interested in much of anything. Paul brings up the natural mental truths the apostles are bringing, what Paul is bringing. They are choosing not to receive what unbelievers can't receive, and they're, they're looking like unbelievers. If a Christian minimizes the cross, they're not acting like a Christian. They don't look like a Christian. They look like an unbeliever. When a Christian places the gospel aside and says, it's fine for a new believer, but the real wisdom, the true wisdom, is in this or that philosophy or whatever, that Christian is acting like a natural Man, this is not how it should be. In chapter 3, which will begin next week, we'll see Paul say, I, I wasn't able to address you as spiritual people because you were so immature you were still acting like carnal man or mere men. Are you acting like mere men? When the believer acts like, sounds like, thinks like, looks like an unbeliever and values the thing that an unbeliever values and takes their... Uh, you know, it's like what Paul wrote to the Galatians. Again, if he, if he preached according to societal norms, in that case, Judaism and the law and legalism and stuff, he says, if I preach like them, then the offense of the cross has ceased. The cross becomes weak. If we look like unbelievers by minimizing the cross, it, it's, it's the gospel that is weakened. This passage, the Christian is above criticism, like the one who's discerned good from evil, right from wrong, wise from foolish, all according to God's word and, and God's will. And then we're also told, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, that verse certainly has more of the idea of condemnation, passing a final sentence on a person, saying, you are past help. Don't do that. Here in 1 Corinthians, the word means to discern. It says he, he or understand even, he who is spiritual discerns all things. Like Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast that which is good. That's an act of spiritual discernment. We listen to what's said, we observe, and if we are spiritual, then we judge the merits of what is seen and heard according to the revealed will and word of God. Again, judging with righteous judgment. Paul says that with the Spirit of God, thus the mind of God, we have the ability to discern all things. 
Peter writes that we're given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Paul will tell the Corinthians later that they should be able to judge between each other without resorting to a secular court of law. This is all because we have the Spirit of God. Now, following this line of reasoning, when Paul says, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, you can see that this is not the kind of judgment that we normally think of, where people say, well, you can't judge me. Think again in terms of discernment here. Discerning someone is seeing what they are made of, understanding where they are coming from, seeing what they do, what they say, and then going, oh, okay, I get it. You could say that being judged in this sense is simply being understood. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, who want so badly to be seen in this good light by those outside the church, he is saying, the ones who aren't spiritual are never going to get you. They're never going to understand you. No one is ever going to understand a Christian. You will not be rightly judged by anyone if you are spiritual. No one is going to be able to figure you out. Not if you... And this, this would sting for the Corinthians, to be sure. They want to be smart so bad. They want to seem smart. They want their message to sound wise. They want to be thought of as sophisticated and intelligent. And now Paul says, you can have either the world say, you're really smart, or you can have God say, you're really smart. <laughs> Paul, they, they, want to be, they want to be seen of as just these intelligent people. And Paul says, that ain't never going to happen. <laughs> you're a Christian now. The spirit-filled will see it through the lens of truth that it's, it's lost in need of saving. The world will never understand the spirit-filled Christian. We don't fit. You'll always appear to be foolish. However, and again, remember how Paul is going back and forth here. He's saying the gospel appears foolish, but it's actually wisdom. And the apostles, himself included, appear weak, but they're actually, you know, they've been given the spirit of God, the power of God. So he says here in verse 14 that the spiritual things are, to the natural man, foolishness. And in verse 15, he says that the spiritual man will never be understood by the non-spiritual. But then... Once more, he shines the light on the true wisdom of God. In verse 16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He says, Would you rather be understood and respected by the world, or would you rather have the actual mind of the infinite God? You can choose, but you know which one's stupid. We have the mind of Christ. That is not a small claim. It is not easily understood. I'm sure I don't understand all of it. It's not a small point. It's not a small claim for the Corinthians. It's extremely important and central to Paul's message to this church. Remember, they want sophistication, and they're going away from the apostles to find it, and they're dividing from each other because of this, uh, this lust for uh, a sense of, of intellectual purity and, and esteem. So Paul says... We have the mind of Christ. That's probably the club you want to be in. He says, we there. Now, in one way, the we there could be those preaching the true gospel, which is what he's going to um, introduce in chapter 3. He's going to talk about the ministry of the apostles. So, saying, we have the mind of Christ, as it has been, as it has been presented in the gospel of the cross of Christ, we're giving you the truth. We're giving you the mind of God. Don't settle for a lesser message. Now, either way, he's saying true wisdom is here. It's at the cross. It is there that we have the mind of God. The Corinthians' other problem, in addition to arrogance, was their divisiveness. 
There's spiritual pride, which Paul says you have to be willing to be a fool. That's where the goods are. And then that pride led to contentions and divisions. When there's division like that, there's a natural tendency, a worldly tendency for one group to say, I have the real Christ. Or I understand what God is thinking much. knows the mind of God. And then here he says it explicitly. We have the mind of Christ. And they should be reminded then of chapter 1, verse 13, where he asks, is Christ divided? If we have the mind of Christ, where's the division coming from? Not him. Can't blame God for that. No, that's on you. Now, let me tell you how this truth in verse 16 defeats any possibility of division. When he says, we have the mind of Christ, he is a God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and come in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What's the wisdom of God? What's the mind of Christ? What's that, all that sophistication? It's the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's the incarnation. It's the humbling of God seen most clearly in crucifixion. If you want real wisdom, if you want real sophistication, this is the wisdom of God. This is what's on the mind of the greatest mind in existence. It's the incarnation of, of God, the, the enfleshing of deep sacrifice, of self-emptying, the same kind of costly obedience, and even the same kind of death. Paul says, I die daily. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. We have the mind of Christ. It has been given to you. The mind of Christ is this. He made himself of no reputation. The opposite of what the Corinthians were trying to do. The opposite of what most of us try to do whenever we talk to another person. You know, I, I, I heard recently someone say, like, I'm, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. And that's kind of it, right? Like, that's, I only want a good reputation. That's what I'm after. That's not the mind of Christ. You've been given a better mind. You've been given, you've been given the mind of Christ, which makes, which makes you of no reputation, or you stop caring about you. He took the form of a bondservant, a slave. That's the opposite of what the Corinthians would like to be. I'm sure it's the opposite of what you would like to be. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. He died on the cross, which is exactly the message that the Corinthians were trying to distance themselves from. God has revealed to us beside him when he washes other people's feet. He has prepared a place for you in his humility. He has given you an opportunity to share in his servanthood to do likewise. The divisive nature of the worldly wisdom would come to nothing with the wisdom that is from above, pure, peaceable, willing to yield. If that was seen in the incarnation and the cross of Christ, not just as a thing to look at and marvel at, though we begin there, but as a, as a mystery that we are called to participate intimately of crucifixion. Now, if you walk on this way, again, it's no surprise if you look like a fool to the world. They're never going to rightly discern you. They're never going to be able to judge you rightly. If you walk this way in Christ, you will understand everything he wants you to know. Isn't that a better knowledge to seek? If you make the cross the central part of your identity, the driving force in your life, then you will most certainly have all the things that Christ wants you to have. He has already given you his mind. He has given you his spirit. He has given you his heart, and he has called you to himself. Could I see that or ear hear that? Could that have entered into the heart of man that God would offer himself to you in his 
fullness. Where else could we go? He has the words of eternal. If he has given you his mind and his spirit and his heart, why would we go anywhere else for another kind of wisdom? To go to Christ and him crucified, to receive all things needed for life and godliness. Repent of your tendency to look elsewhere for another kind of wisdom or another kind of satisfaction. And then rejoice that there is room next to Jesus on the floor where he washes the disciples' feet. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, not as we should, but as best we can. We pray, pour out the Spirit of God into our hearts, the love of God by your Spirit into our hearts. You have given us your mind. We don't seek a wisdom higher than the cross. We don't look for a kind of sophistication beyond this selfless love of others. So lead us in this because we are easily distracted and we, we, we look for shiny things and, and nice sounding words. All the while you have given us the mind of Christ in humility. Let us walk this way and know what, know what you would have for us and have what you would give to us. Thank you for making room for us next to you as you serve your people, as you serve those you love. God, let us be filled with all the fullness of God. Let us miraculously know the love of Christ that surpasses dimensions. Bless your church with these things. Let the seed of your word fall on good soil this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Mm-hmm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.